Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Tixum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Reflections on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path by Jim Dunn. The Dharma is so vast, it can be easy to lose sight of the fundamentals. In this talk, Jim Dunn takes a new look at some of the basic teachings of the Buddha and examines how to bring them into one's daily life. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, I'm Jim Dunn. I'll be teaching this morning. And uh, just kind of giving some reflections that I've had and some reflections that come from Stephen Batchelor's works on the Four Noble Truths and uh, what they're about and try to look at them in a little more different way than uh, we have ordinarily done that. Most of the people that come to these probably are very familiar with the Four Noble Truths and uh, but I think they're always worth revisiting and reflecting on, and I think looking at them in a slightly different way. Actually, in some ways, the view that Stephen Bachelor gives them is, in some ways, a quite a different way. But I think it's a very productive way, and a more useful way. To me, the uh, purpose of the Dharma is really, you know, how to live a good life, how to live the best life you can. It's not about memorizing a bunch of lists. Although somebody once quipped that while Christians love Jesus, Buddhists love lists, and we have enough, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Seven Factors of Awakening, on and on and on, the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination. There is a uh, ton of lists that we have. But I think those were later additions. I think when the Buddha actually taught, his real purpose was basically just to teach people on how to live a good life in the here and now. It's not about learning a lot or studying a lot or having very specific practices. He seemed to strikes me as being a very pragmatic kind of guy, a very practical guy. That really wanted to solve the problems of living a life and how to make human life really flourish, I guess is the word I'd like to use. So I'm going to explore that a little bit this morning and talk about them. Uh, usually as we begin, we start by setting our intention to listen to the Dharma and reflect on it a little bit and uh, Start with the refuse chant. And since we're talking about the Four Noble Truths, which really are a core part of the Pali Canon, that's the sutras uh, that come as close as we can to the actual words of the Buddha. Pali was not quite the language. They don't think that the Buddha spoke, but it's close to it. And the suttas were finally written down, and this is the connection we have directly back to the Buddha himself, we are in Pali. 
So, <clears throat> and this is a chant that is recited all throughout Asia, where Buddhism is practiced, mainly in the Theravada traditions and in Buddhist centers in this country. <clears throat> and I will read it once in Pali, <clears throat> a second time in English, and a third time in uh, Pali. So it begins, Namo tasa bhagavato arhato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato same sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama buddhasa. Namo buddham saranam gacharmi. Daman saranam gacharmi. Buddham saranam gacharmi. Sangan Saranam Kachami. Homage to the Sublime One, to the Worthy One, to the Fully Enlightened One. Homage to the Sublime One, the Worthy One, the Fully Enlightened One. Homage to the Sublime One, the Worthy One, the Fully Enlightened One. A second time, I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. <clears throat> Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Tatiyam p. Buddham Saranam Gachami, Daman Saranam Gachami, Sangan Saranam Gachami. So those are the three refuges. I'm not very good at chanting, but they really sound powerful and moving when you hear a large group of people chanting them together. It was really nice when I was in Asia a number of years ago hearing them done at some of the Buddhist temples in Asia and Bangkok. So that should get us started. And uh, so I guess if there's any questions, please feel free to enter them in the chat. I like questions. I like responding to more. I was much more interested in what you want to know than hearing myself talk. <clears throat> So if I get confuse you, if you have questions or you don't understand anything, or you'd like me to amplify anything, please feel free to post something up here. So the first noble truth is usually stated that there is suffering. And Stephen Batchelor rephrases these as in terms of tasks. And if you actually look at the Sutta, and I would really recommend people take a look at some of the Pali stuff First Sutta here, it's easily available on the web, setting in motion the wheel of truth or the first turning of the Dharma wheel. The Dhamma Chaka Papavatana Sutta, I think is the official name. 
and uh, and what the Buddha says in these is that uh, suffering is to be our dukkha, and I think I'm going to use the word dukkha more than suffering because. Suffering is an okay translation, but not complete. Dukkha really refers to all the things that are a little bit unsatisfactory in this world. Uh, he identifies three different kinds of suffering. There's the dukkha, 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 the dukkha of suffering itself. Things are unpleasant, you get a headache, that kind of thing. There is the dukkha of impermanence, the parama dukkha, unpleasant experiences, pleasant experiences. It sometimes is called a Nietzsche dukkha, and Nietzsche means impermanent. So, so we need to look at that. And then there is the Sankara dukkha, which is as its origin in what the Pali word is tana, which translates more literally into thirst. Mental activity that reflects the craving for things to somehow be other than they are, somehow to be how we want them. And we're back at the basic definition of Buddha because it's not too often that we get in the extended period of time where things are really the way we want them. And actually, the root meaning of the word dukkha goes back to an axle that's a little off-center. So it's kind of pointing to a bumpy ride. No matter what we do, the ride is going to be a little bit bumpy. But in the Sutta, the Buddha says, the noble truth of suffering or dukkha is to be comprehended. Well, this doesn't mean we have to go out and try to suffer, but we need to examine this. We need to really comprehend it, to understand it, to grasp at it. And this is a task, the way Stephen Batchelor states these. The first noble truth, suffering, is to be comprehended. And really talking further about just what the suffering, the stuka, is. It's actually kind of life. You know, if we talk about something goes a little bit wrong, we complain to our friend that something was wrong, and they'll say, that's life. And in that sense, life is dukkha. I mean, we use that phrase pretty often, a lot of us do. Well, that's life. That's dukkha. And yet, the instruction here is to really embrace life to fully engage with all the good things, the unpleasant things, but engage with it as it is, realistically, and just kind of know it. As Orba the Greek said, the, the whole catastrophe, you know, when things go wrong and there is suffering, and it's sometimes hard to find meaning in life. You wonder to what end. And yet, you know, we talk about the Brahma Viharas, the four immeasurables, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and uh, equanimity. 
<clears throat> and those are immeasurable. We're supposed to love things anyway, no matter how wrong they are. That is our task, to fully embrace life, to engage in it, to be a part of it. So when you have worked with this, understood this a little bit, then you wonder about, well, what do we do about suffering? You know, the usual teachings on this is the suffering is caused by greed, hatred, delusion. But I think the easiest way to summarize those is reactivity. It's how we react to things. And we often react without much thought or space. It's kind of automatic. It's not skillful. It's not uh, necessarily intelligent. You know, somebody says something nasty to us and you immediately think jerk. Or in some contexts, you just want to hit them. I mean, I used to work in the prisons as a chaplain and uh, you see a lot of that kind of thing there. Somebody says something to you and the only appropriate response they think is to hit back. So, so with practice with understanding suffering as dukkha is coming from the way we react to things. And the reaction is usually we want something or we don't want something or sometimes we just even don't care, just utterly neutral. That's getting close to the delusion, the indifference. So the instruction here is to kind of abandon this reactivity. And that's easier said than done. But that is why we practice. And that's what our meditation practice does, is creates more spaciousness. We have more time to reflect a little bit on what's going on, even though it seems like no time at all. As we meditate more and more and get deeper into our practice, we're able to see things a little more clearly and realize that we can respond in a way that's more intelligent, more compassionate, more loving, and build in the Brahma Viharas, the four immeasurables. The Brahma Viharas is the Pali word for what we call the four immeasurables. Brahmins are the sort of the noble ones, the divine ones. And Vihara means just simply dwelling place. Uh, Buddhist monasteries are called Viharas in Asia. So I guess I will go back and forth on those. I have studied a lot of the Pali Sutras, and so I tend to think more in the Pali language than the Sanskrit or Tibetan language. And I just find the kind of clarity there and that really is helpful to me anyway. So to abandon this kind of reactivity is to kind of requires we look at it to know what's going on, to spend time contemplating it, thinking about it, and looking at how our reactions are to things. And when we finally get through that, we get to the third noble truth, the cessation, the ending of dukkha. And that is simply comes when 
reactivity has been abandoned. We've stopped being reactive. And we have to, the task is there is to realize the sensation. And so this is kind of an ongoing circular kind of thing. The fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. And that is to be cultivated, to, to be developed. And as we develop the path, these sufferings that we began with will come back. We won't be free of them, but as we practice and cultivate the Eightfold Path, we will suffer less and less. We will have less dukkha. And so this kind of goes on. Each time we come back to it, and that will be many, many times in the course of even a day. As you go through these we will get a little more skillful at it, a little more better at it. I, the Zen center that I studied at uh, in Santa Fe was called Upaya, which is a good word for it. It's a Zen center, but it brings in all kinds of people. And basically, Upaya means skillful means. And Roshi John Halifax, I guess, looks to all of the Dharma traditions as variations of skillful means of upayas. And so like Stephen Batchelor has been through a number, he spent a number of years in uh, India studying with the Gulupa sect of Tibetan Buddhists under a lot of very good teachers there and learned a lot of the critical thinking that comes in the Gulupa tradition. And then he wound up in Korea studying Korean Zen tradition for a number of years. And now he is a writer thinker on Buddhism in general. If any of the traditional traditions, he's more of a Pasana Theravada. But he's also creating what he calls secular Buddhism. And, uh, and I think it's a good, and I think it's an authentic form of Dharma in a way that brings it into life for more people. It's easier to relate to. So I rather like his books a lot. I've met him and talked with him. And uh, you can hear his talks online a number of places. Upaya has a number of his talks at their website. I think he has his own website that uh, has a number of his talks. He's a British guy with a lovely voice, so it's good to listen to. So part of what we're doing here is trying to uh, make figure out how to live in this world. You know, and as Shanti Deva pointed out, it is uh, really about, well, as I said before, human flourishing. So that is kind of the gist of what I wanted to talk about this morning is really how to best practice the Dharma to bring it into your life in a way that's really practical and useful. And the Four Noble Truths really do get at that. First of all, acknowledging the situation we're in, this world we're in with all of its challenges. You know, Buddha also defines suffering as getting what you don't want, not getting what you want. Birth is suffering, death is suffering. You know, another list. But I think we all kind of have an idea of what variations of suffering are. And uh, 
So we just need to comprehend that. We don't want to look away. I guess that's the thing I think a lot of us tend to do when we see something ugly or unpleasant going on in the world is we don't want to look. We want to advert our eyes. And I think what the Buddha is getting at here in this first noble truth, this first noble task, is not looking away, of being present and acknowledging what is. That doesn't mean accepting it. It's not necessarily all right. But uh, we have to respond to it. And uh, we have to know what it is. We have to be present for it. So, so much of what we've talked about in these practices is seeing things as they are, seeing things in the present moment. That is the other yeah, piece of this is just being in touch with the reality of understanding it, comprehending it, and then figuring out a way to respond to it. I think those of you that have heard me teach before, I use this quote almost every time, but young man, uh, uh, old Zen practitioner from China, as he was getting old, was asked, what's the lesson of a lifetime of study? And his response was an appropriate response, an appropriate statement. And that's really what I think we're all looking for, is whatever comes up in our life is how do we respond to it? How do we deal with whatever comes up? And as our practice gets deeper and goes better, we find that it'll be more automatic to drop some of the rules and thinkings that we've had and just simply respond in a more compassionate and loving way. Bringing the loving kindness, the compassion, the wisdom that we develop from our practice. So that is kind of, you know, I have a lot of notes here. And, could read a lot of stuff. Are there any questions on anything I've said so far? Or any questions you want to know? Another way of looking at this, the path. I find really interesting what Stephen Batchelor was talking about. We talk a lot about emptiness in this tradition. And if you look at some of the early suttas, the early teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha says, I dwell in emptiness. He doesn't say, I understand emptiness. I comprehend emptiness. He says, I dwell in it. And I think what that means is dwelling in a place that is open, non-reactive. He has no need to impose anything. As you start to see things, and emptiness is really about what, dropping or grasping or the way we respond to things where we want it, we don't want it. It's just seeing it clearly as it is. And almost anything you see is uh, everything we can say about it comes from us, from our mind. And I think that's the easiest way for me to look at emptiness. You know, we add things to the world. There is a tree outside my window here. And I call it a tree. The reason I call it a tree is because I speak English. There's no other reason for me to call it to that. It has no treeness in it. If you took it apart, examined it, you won't find anything that says this is a tree. 
you'll find various qualities that we will name and categorize and sort out, but that's what we add to it. So seeing it clearly in and of itself as it is, is uh, I think what part of what we're trying to get at here. So if we look at the path as a way to get here, then keep in mind that a path is, you know, an open space between other stuff. And so the path is kind of a metaphor for emptiness. It's that space where we can walk, where we can move, where we can function. Another way to look at all of this is Stephen uses the acronym ELSA. To kind of cover this. ELSA is the E is embrace life. The L is let go, let go of reactivity. The S is to stop, stop the reactive habitual patterns we all have to cut through them. And the A is to act, act in a compassionate way, act in, in cultivating the path, the eightfold path. And just to refresh your memories, if you haven't thought about them in a while, the Eightfold Path begins with the right view, or sometimes right understanding. And that is really comprehending the Four Noble Truths, just kind of what we've been going through, having developed that view, internalized it. Uh, you know, we talk about the three wisdoms, I think, of hearing the Dharma, contemplating the Dharma, and then uh, meditating on it with it or realizing or bringing it into your life. The second step is right thought. And those are generally thoughts of loving kindness, compassion, generosity, or their opposites of non non-hatred, non-cruelty, non-greediness, letting those go. So we'll cultivate that. There is right speech. And right speech is usually not talking harshly about other people, telling the truth. And right speech also gets mixed in with right action which is next, which would include, you know, not spreading rumors, not maligning people, not giving false testimony, not speaking harshly. Right action is avoiding killing, avoiding stealing, or taking that which isn't freely given as the way it's usually stated. Sexual misconduct. All those basically come down to honoring your commitments to others and other people's commitments. Don't take that which isn't freely given and non-harming, not harming people. The next one is right livelihood, which is not taking jobs that basically cause us to violate the dharma, not killing, scheming, wanting things. And a whole list of things I have here. Selling poison, selling weapons, selling living beings, selling alcohol, meat, those kinds of things. 
but basically it comes down to uh, just keeping your life in terms in tune with the Dharma, with good teachings, and trying not to make a living with ways that violate it. And we get to write effort, write endeavors, one translation. And that means it takes effort, energy to do this. We need to practice. We need to work at it. And the more fourfold way it sometimes has been taught is it's cultivating good things, getting rid of bad things. Uh, and if there's bad things that have arise, then you get rid of them. If good things have happened, then you try to cultivate them and hang on to them. So it's pretty simple, right? Mindfulness, what we talk about a lot in, the, in Buddhism is practicing meditation. Right concentration gets into the jhanas, the absorptions, and the deeper form of meditation. And that gets into a whole different kind of talk. But that is the path that is to be cultivated. And basically it comes down to three things. The first part is ethics. This, well, that's the middle part. The first part is wisdom, then ethics, and then meditation. So that is what we're trying to do. Is just kind of work with those things. Any other comments or questions? Has this been useful? Well, I guess some people found this somewhat useful, I hope. And apparently it's been clear enough because there's so few questions, so I must be making this very clear. No, I didn't prepare a very long talk today. I kind of hoped I'd get a little more interaction, which I respond to much better than sitting here and trying to talk to myself, it seems like. so. But I think looking at these has three tasks or four tasks, things to do, things to accomplish, to work at, the cultivating the path. I think it's helpful rather than just things to learn. We have so many of these lists we can rattle off. And yet they don't seem to come alive if we don't work with them. So I think that is kind of the key thing, is really embodying this, making the dharma come alive in us, in our lives, carrying it with us. Because the point of it all really is, as young men said, an appropriate response, whatever comes up whatever arises. If our practice doesn't help with, with that, then uh, I'm not sure our practice is worth much. Unless we want to be scholars of Buddhism, and there are plenty of those, and it's a good field to study. But uh, uh, Sally wants to know about my experience at Upaya. Yeah. I moved to Santa Fe, what, about 12, 15 years ago? I can't quite remember. And I had just retired, and I thought, what am I going to do between now and death? And then I saw that Upaya was offering a chaplaincy training program. And I've been doing that kind of work in the prison here as a volunteer, working with a couple of prisoners on Dharma, Buddhism. And so when I moved there, I thought this would be a nice opportunity to go deeper into that. And so I enrolled and was accepted. 
It was a two-year program. Learned an awful lot. Roshi Joan is, seems to know everybody that's involved in the Dharma. I mean, she tells stories about the Dalai Lama getting angry and swearing. Uh, you know, Stephen Batchelor comes regularly. He's a good friend of her. Helen Wallace has been a regular. Uh, Sharon Salzberg comes. There's several Rinpoches that she's worked with and had there. Uh, I think Sangay Rinpoche comes some, with some regularity. So she's very open, very eclectic. Bernie Glassman was one of her main teachers, and he is an interesting guy. Comes there, he was giving a Dharma talk and uh, was asked a question that he thought, oh, that's a serious question. So he turned around and showed up with a clown nose on just to answer the question, and put it all in perspective. So the program was, yeah, two years, full time for about two weeks, 10 days in the winter in March, and then another 10 days in August, and then in between had to do a lot of writing and reading and studying, and then produce a thesis. Mine was on contemplative practices in the prisons. And we did not get into too much of the nuts and bolts of actually Zen practices. I mean, we did do the Zen chants in the morning when we were meeting there for those 10 days where we were there full time actually staying on the Upaya Center. But uh, but that wasn't emphasized. No, she was perfectly fine with me being a Tibetan practitioner and a Vipassana practitioner. We had another woman there that had actually done two, three-year retreats in the Nigma tradition. So she was very much a Tibetan Buddhist. And then, interestingly, one guy that I really liked and got to know, Chris Ford, was a high-level worker in the Pentagon. I think he was just, under Trump, wound up being an assistant secretary of state. So we have this Republican there, too. So it was a very interesting place. And, uh, you know, if you check out their website, you can find a lot of these teachings there. There are hundreds of Dharma talks there. They offer classes now, teachings now, that right now with Zoom and everything are donation only. And uh, you can attend, listen, and get something out of it. So I think, yeah, there's just a very rich place to uh, Pay attention to the study. Some of the things they have to offer, listen to some of their Dharma talks. Okay, who else has been there that might group might be familiar with in our tradition? I'm not sure I'm thinking of anybody offhand. But so many of the teachers there are not necessarily Zen teachers. How regular there was Father John Deere, a radical priest. I think he's been arrested something like 80 times. He's been protesting since the 70s. There's a big protest every year in Los Alamos around uh, the bombing of Hiroshima. And then she's had Jewish rabbis there a couple of times. And Brother David Stendhal, who is 
very big on emphasizing gratitude as a practice. So the Dharma talks there every Wednesday, and those are all online. So you can check it out if you would like. Yeah. Anything else before we wind this up? I have not learned Polly. Sally's asking me how how you go to, about learning Polly. I have not learned Polly. I've picked up a few words, a few quotes, and uh, the books are all available in translation. Actually, they're all on the web. Access to Insight is a site website that has hundreds of these talks. And then another website, Suda Central, also has a lot of Pali texts in English in translation. I think it also, I think Suda Central also has them in Pali if you really want to learn Pali. <clears throat> but some of the words like dukkha don't translate well. It's incomplete, and that's why I think it's important to know them. And I think it's a little clearer once we kind of talk about defining them and making it clear to use the word rather than trying to limit it, like with suffering, which is okay, but not entirely complete. It seems to say something a little different than what I think the Buddha was getting after. But, you know, that's true. I think in the, we don't, we sometimes use Tibetan words too, and KTC and uh, so I just think it's useful having some of the vocabulary of being aware that these are in translation from another language and translations don't always match exactly what you're trying to say well, if you really are serious about learning Pali though I think Ohio State linguistic department offers a class in it I'm not sure if they still do, but Pali and its sister language, Sanskrit. But I just find knowing these things just kind of enriches my practice. And it stretches how you think about some of these things a little bit. You know, when I first started hearing about Buddhism, the first noble truth is suffering. You know, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about suffering. So I think it kind of gives us bad press the way we talk about that. But when you broaden it out, when you really understand what the Buddhist is getting at, is he's just saying, really embrace life, be present. Show up for what's happening, accept it. Does that help? If there's anything important in all of my notes here that I wanted to say, if there's nothing else, I think I will close out, since I've been talking about Upaya, with the Zen chant that they used to end things with at Upaya, that I really like. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes quickly, and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. And with that, we'll dedicate the merit that all beings may find some way to find their way to a fuller and more meaningful life and find their way, if not to the Dharma, then 
a way to know the teachings of the Dharma. So thank you very much for listening to me. And uh, I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Texum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.